רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. Okay, we start. Lisa Feldman Barrett is among the top 1% scientist or cited scientist in the world for a revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She is a university distinguished professor at Northeastern University with appointment at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Barrett was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in neuroscience in uh, 2020. 19 and she is a member of the American Academy of Art and Sciences and the Royal Society of Canada. She published many, many articles and two books, I think more than two books, but two books that we are going to discuss now. One is Emotions, how, uh, the, emotions, how emotions are made and the second, seven and a half lessons about the brain. So Lisa, Thank you so much for coming. How are you today? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. How are you? Uh, very excited. But now after reading your book about emotion, I don't know. I, I became self-conscious about being, me being excited. What is this emotion <laughs> precisely? Now, have you ever been in Israel? I have. Uh, I've been in Israel several times, actually. Um, the last time I was there... I was at a um, a workshop, I guess, that was held at Hebrew University by a former uh, colleague of mine and uh, one of my former students, actually. So I have one of my former students on faculty there. And then we took my daughter on an archaeological tour um, with an archaeologist that we uh, were able, we were had really good fortune to hire an archaeologist. And so we got to tour some of the digs, archaeological digs in Israel. So we were just, it was really, really fun. It was one of our wow. best trips, I think. Yeah. Wow. This is great. And one thing that you keep saying in your books is about different emotions, different cultures. And uh, before we dig into the theory, what do you think about the, you know, the the Israeli type of emotions versus the American types of emotion. Could you distinguish between the two? Or we are well, just all West ones? If I was using um, stereotypes, what I would say is that, you know, because I'm Canadian, but anybody who talks to me think, will think I'm from New York. Actually, I would probably be seen as kind of a mild Israeli, you know, because I have... I'm a little bit kind of in your face, but maybe not as much. Um, so I feel like I feel you know if the stereotypes right are I mean, my uh, uh, one of my former postdocs, Shir Atsil, who's on faculty at uh, University um, of Jerusalem, um, Hebrew University of Jerusalem, <laughs> two of us would like get into these really intense debates. and sometimes other people would get like, really were and I'm like no we're just we're totally in love we're loving each other we're like this is what we're we're totally engaged with each other this is uh so um 
I would say that um, there are some cultures that have uh, the stereotype in that culture is to be much more exuberant um, in um, the feeling of emotion and the expression of emotion. And other cultures are much more reserved. Um, the assumption is that that there's less expression and maybe even less intensity in the feeling. But I think the more interesting places where we see real cultural differences are not so much in the intensity dial. You know, it's really where the categories, the actual, um, the actual emotions that people experience are very, very different. And um, there are some emotions that exist in some cultures that don't exist in English, don't exist in Hebrew, um, and and vice versa. So that's to us where things get really, really interesting. Um, it's not that you have an emotion, it's this physical thing, and then you label it or identify it. Your brain is involved in taking the signals from your body, the changes in heart rate and blood pressure and and so on and also the changes in the world and creating an emotion out of it that's really how we understand it this is mind-blowing now let's start let's start okay this is so fascinating okay the first uh, uh the first time i came across your name was with a uh, with lex friedman not on the podcast but on his lesson and what you said there was mesmerizing you said we in the ai community and i consider myself being part of the ai community we want to do a ai system that do emotion recognition but we don't do that we do facial recognition we do facial expression okay this is smiling it's like the very stupid smiley diagram and what you said is one emotion can be divided into many different facial expression like fear or joy and one facial expression can be divided into many emotions so in fact when we want to do okay what do you feel right now what what are you feeling and i look at your face i barely can know anything Could you please elaborate on this? Oh, point? I never said that we can't know anything. No, no, okay, okay. I, okay. I, I didn't this actually is my, that, okay, no, no, no. Yeah, so you can't be 100% sure. Yeah, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna modify what you said with some language, but I will say that this is one of the most empirically, I feel so solidly, the empirical evidence behind what I'm about to say is so solid. I, I, I mean, I spent, two and a half years reviewing more than a thousand published articles with four other senior scientists, some of whom believed in the universality of emotional expression, believe that when you're smiling, you're happy. And when you're happy, you're smiling. When you're angry, you're scowling. And when you're scowling, you're angry. And that everybody around the world does this and can recognize these facial movements as expressions. So some of us came to this, came to the table, not Uh, ha not having that hypothesis, other people did. And in the end, two and a half years later, the five of us, each of us very, very senior people in our own fields came to great consensus over the evidence. And one of them was uh, uh, an engineer who does um, computer vision. And another was a computer scientist who builds, you know, agents. So just so we're clear, here's 
the evidence. When you make, first of all, I, you can't refer to facial movements as facial expressions because sometimes movements happen and they're not expressions of anything. So you really have to make a distinction between what you see and the meaning of what you see. So a facial movement like a smile is a movement. In fact, we could describe the movement in terms of facial muscles, but let's just you know, use a description like a smile, a scowl, a frown. Those are movements. You're inferring what the movement means. You're not detecting emotion, you're inferring it. And that's what everybody does all the time. And we do it pretty well, I think, actually, because we're not just using the facial movement itself, we're using an entire context of signals. Nobody, except in very odd psychology experiments, ever looks at a disembodied face and tries to try out what that face is expressing, okay? So um, here's what the evidence shows. About 35% of the time, when people are angry, they scowl. That's more than chance. So it means that scowling is one expression of anger. But Just it a also second, means, and this is culture dependent or culture independent? I'm not even at culture yet. This is just in, this is just in um, mostly Western urban setting. Okay, so let's not even get to culture. We'll get there in a minute. But people like us, okay, 35% of the time, if someone's scowling at you and you guess that they're anger, angry, or you feel like you're detecting anger, you have some possibility of being right. But 65% of the time, people scowl when they're not, I mean, sorry, 65% of the time, people, when they're angry, are doing something else that's very meaningful with their face. I mean, just think about the last time you got angry. Did you scowl? Did, has anybody ever won an Academy Award in the United States for depicting anger as a scowl? I mean, no, no, never. And that's because people do many things with their face when they're angry. But even more importantly, Evidence shows that about half of the scowls that people make have nothing to do with anger. People scowl when they're concentrating really hard. This is something my husband does actually. It's still disconcerting to me. I study emotion and I see him scowling and I say, are you angry? And he's like, are you angry? What did you do with my wife? Like, you know, and I, you know, when I finally discovered this, I said to my students, can you believe that this man that I'm dating scowls when you're they're angry when when they're, they're like we you know dr barrett we or actually then i was dr feldman you we hate to tell you but you know you do the same thing and it scared the bejesus out of us you know so when i'm concentrating really hard on what they're saying i'm like scowling at them and okay people scowl when they you tell them a bad joke people scowl uh when they have gas people scowl all all sorts of reasons so that means that the the reliability of scowling and anger is low and the specificity of scowling and anger is low. You pick any emotion category and any stereotypic, Western stereotypic expression that has been claimed as the universal expression and that's what you find. Now, when you start to look at cultural differences, things get even more variable. Just a second, just a second, before the cultural differences, nevertheless, what you said is 100% science. Nevertheless, I feel in my daily life 
that I can detect pretty good emotions, okay? With, with my spouse, maybe not my spouse, but you know, with my friends, <laughs> et cetera. And can it be due to the theory of mirror neuron? Uh, that... Well, yes and no, yes and no. So let me just say that, first of all, um, I feel like I, I'm pretty good at reading people's emotions too, but, um, but all of us, no matter how good you are, nobody's reading, everybody's guessing. Motor neurons guess. Actually, if you want to call them motor neurons, we'll get to that in a second. Yes. But the neurons that are involved are guessing. It's an inference. It's not a read. You're not detecting anything. You're guessing based on past experience. And what you're what you're guessing on is not one signal. It's not one signal from the face. It's the signals also around you. It's the signals also that are coming from that person. It's also the signals in your own body. I can manipulate your nervous system without your awareness and it will change literally what you see in somebody else's face so my point to you is that evidence shows that our confidence about anything that we think comes from a very different place than the actual perception <laughs> that we're engaging in mirror neurons are not special kinds of neurons they're just they're they just do what neurons do basically mirror neurons are are a set of neurons that are in part of your brain called the premotor cortex, which is important for um, motor planning, for planning your own actions, actions, and for planning, um, for planning your own actions and for perceiving other people's actions. So they're not special in any way, and they're involved in things other than, turns out, motor movements. They're um, it's a longer explanation than we have time for, but but basically they're not detecting anything. They're just making an inference. Um, and yeah, you know, you're if you're a neurotypical person, you have a neurotypical brain, you spent your whole life interacting with people and learning uh, about patterns. Um, and your brain uses those patterns to make a pretty decent guess about what a particular set of facial movements means in a particular situation. And that's true for all of us, no matter how, no matter what your subjective confidence level is. Nobody's reading anybody. Reading, body, body language is a metaphor. Yes. Body movements aren't a language to be read like words on a page. They're inferred. Inferred, inferred. and guessed. The meaning is inferred. So what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying right now is that current AI system has almost have almost no way of knowing what I'm feeling right now because they Absolutely. like so, no way of knowing. It so knows, much. No, I have knows, the facial expression, the facial movement. But no, I, the facial but I, movement. Yes. The, the, yes. Best, the best AI that I know of can detect movements but not what those movements mean psychologically. Okay, so let's move to the cultural dependent. This is, with, this is before we went into the cultural, one culture versus another culture. If I go and inspect two cultures, two different cultures, one Western and one Chinese, what do I find out? It depends on how much, first of all, it depends on whether it's an urban setting or a rural setting in part because 
urban settings have much more access to Western cultural practices and norms than urban than than rural. What settings. do you mean? Uh, uh, this is what we say: peasant culture. As I'm rural not really culture. saying peasant culture. I'm saying how much. First of all, there well there are too many factors to identify them all. But basically, first of all, how much do people have access to Western? things do they watch western movies do they read western books do they talk to western people do they so that's one issue another issue is how um small is the culture meaning do, are people interacting with 10 other people with 20 other people are they interacting with 500 other people how about 10,000 other people so you know what we find is that um there is a gradient really of Um, you know, scowling in anger, smiling in happiness, frowning in sadness. These are Western stereotypes that have been around for a really long time. Like go back to ancient Greece. Um, uh, you know, as go back to the where whoever was the first person who was writing. I mean, the first person I know writing about facial expressions was, you know, in Thank ancient you. Greece, but maybe there's something even earlier than that. But the the those ideas have been around for a long time. Um, and they're stereotypes and stereotypes, you know, are not, the, I mean, they're not, they don't come out of nowhere. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that just those stereotypes describe what people do. If you go to cultures where like very small, um, uh, rem, you know, cultures that are more remote, so they're not completely isolated. Right. But let's say, you know, our lab has been to Tanzania to study the Hadza who are hunter gatherers. And we've been to Namibia to study um, the Himba, who are um, semi-pastoralist. They're not... Let me give you just one. Let, let me give my viewers one example from your latest book. When people from the island of Bali in Indonesia are afraid, they fall asleep. Or at least that's what they are supposed to do. And this is a very different strategy to do when you're afraid than the Western st strategy. And this is one example that depicts... the massive difference yeah between different cultures well you know in you know what we think of as a stereotypic fear face like wide eyes gasping mouth that's actually a that's actually a um a face that expresses threat that you are threatening someone not that you're afraid of someone but that you're threatening someone in Melanesia so you know, The point being that if you go to cultures that are very different from ours, particularly cultures that are um, more, uh, they're not completely remote from Western influence, but they're they're more isolated from Western influence. Maybe not isolated is not even the right word anymore because nobody's isolated, but you know that they, they have less um, interaction um, with Westerners. You see vastly, vastly different um, emotional uh economies let's say people the the categories they use are different the expressions are different um the feelings are com are combined in different ways it's very very different i had richard nisbet on on the show and mm -hmm. one of his books that i love so much is the geography of thought and what he mm -hmm. says basically that when a uh, philosophers in the 17 16 18th century said All human beings are, mainly they said all Westerns are. Yeah. And yeah. he said, no, the thought 
even the rationale is very different from in China and the US. But what you're saying right now is also the emotions. So if well, yeah, you... and and yes, and and you know, here's a really good example. You know, in in standard Western um, scripts, you know, uh, you feel you are either feeling pleasant or you're unple- you're feeling unpleasant. Like you're you know, anger is unpleasant and happiness is pleasant. You know, sadness is unpleasant, fear is unpleasant, and you know, compassion is pleasant. Well, first of all, even in people in the United States, there are flavors of anger that are <laughs> very pleasant. There are um, flavors of happiness that are also unpleasant, like, and actually, there's a very common um, cultural difference in the um, relationship between pleasant and unpleasant features. So in the United States, You're either one or the other. And the idea is that if you're ambivalent, let's say, or you um, have something like nostalgia, what you're doing is you're kind of flipping back and forth between pleasant and unpleasant states. But in certain other cultures, actually, um, Israel is supposed to be one of these uh, cultures. Um, and actually, if you look, if you, well, I'll just say it and then I'll tell you what my thoughts are. Um, also Chinese culture, certain Chinese cultures, pleasant and unpleasant are not opposite states. They're actually features of the same state. So it's um, and this is called dialecticism. This is there's a huge research literature on dialecticism and the differences in um, American experiences, which are either one or the other. Um, and um, And other cultures where there's more of a blend and the blend is it's not like you're flipping back and forth between two mm-hmm. states it's that you're really these are features of of the same state um oh. and if you look at some Jewish customs you can see that they are designed in a sense always to infuse features of one and affective like one affective feeling into episodes that would come from another so in moments of happiness like a wedding you're also remembering unpleasant things like you step on a glass and that you know that's supposed to remind you of the destruction of a temple or something um, similar in um, when you're sitting Shiva someone's passed away you're also supposed to remember positive things about that you're pleasant things about that person and and you As opposed to having these really polarized views of positive negative so that's also uh, mm. a dimension of a variation um, there are lots of dimensions of variation in anger for example in a, in an American version of anger I mean they're the stereotype because there are lots of versions of anger even in the United States but in an American version anger is distancing and When you're angry at someone, you are you're putting distance, psychologically distance between you and that other person. Also, you're putting yourself on top, like in a subordinate you are in a in a hierarchically dominant position and they're subordinate to you. that's that's the maneuver with anger, but stereotypically. But there are other versions of anger um, that actually do exist in the u s, but that are more stereotypic in other cultures, like um, Uh, like Turkish versions of anger where anger is um, 
uh, brings people closer together. So you, um, in anger, anger is, a, is an indication of it's time to approach. It's an indication of caring for each other. It's an indication of, um, it's kind of like, you know, when my, my uh, friend and former uh, postdoc Sheer and I were really arguing with each other, you know, things were getting pretty heated, but we weren't, we didn't hate each other. We were actually yes. demonstrating actually our intellectual and also commitment to each other and our affection for each other. So these are the subtle, but very important transactional differences across cultures that are completely ignored and glossed over uh, if you, um, um, you know, ignore, if you, if you think about universality. I'll just give you one other example. This example is not mine. It's an example that comes from Lee Ross, who is a psychologist who passed away, but who um, maybe you're familiar with his work because he was very close with it. Yes. Yeah. I tell you one thing that Richard told me about Lee Ross. He told yeah. me that Lee was a very, a very lazy person. <laughs> and 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 he I, I think I quote it word by word he say I beated three books out of Leros <laughs> I believe that well Dick is very um he's prolific <laughs> oh. and the irritating thing about him is you know sentences come out of his mouth fully formed and beautifully reasoned like some of us have to work very hard you know to like Uh, make ourselves understood in in a concise way he's just he speak you know he just thinks very precisely and speaks very precisely but Lee Ross I remember um listening to him talk um I I think he was also really quite brilliant um I don't know about whether he was lazy or not but he was certainly a brilliant scientist and he made the observation that part of the difficulty um that Israelis and Palestinians have, Is that the way Israelis speak when they are indicating commitment and care is offensive to Palestinians. So because Palestinians the the stereotype is that they're, they're a culture of honor and uh, they um, don't you know there have to be certain um, patterns of politeness and If you if you're an Israeli and you're really feeling intensely about something and you're telling that person because you really care, they're gonna, you know, a Palestinian will see that as offensive rather than as an indication of care. I think I'm not Israeli and I'm not Palestinian, yes. so I can't say for sure, but I think that's a good example of at least a, a possible place where the belief in universality can get you into real trouble. According to history, we don't offend them enough. Uh, <laughs> now, one thing, that, uh, 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 one thing that you said in your uh, TED lecture, emotions don't happen to you, they're made by you. And up until now, we just talked about the manifestations of different emotions. So the anger, the, the American version of anger is distant and the Turkish version of anger is being closer together. But my question is, Besides manifestation of the same feeling or the same emotion anger, do they or a Turkish and American experience a different entity or a different thing which they attribute to anger? But you know, 
all the chemicals in the brain are totally different. So here's the problem with the question that you're asking. How do you investigate this? Well, let me answer your question and then I'll tell you <laughs> how we investigate it. Anger is not one thing. Even for you or for me or for an, any, uh, you know, uh, pick a, uh, any American, there is no entity of anger. Anger is not an entity. It's a population of instances that are variable, that are constructed by your brain to fit the situation you're in. So some instances of anger involve increases in heart rate and some involve decreases in heart rate and some involve no change in heart rate. Some involve, you know, increases in cortisol, some involve decreases in cortisol, some involve no change in cortisol. Um, the, there isn't a single brain pattern. There isn't a single chemical pattern. There isn't a single physiological pattern that anybody has ever identified in the entire time that people have been looking for such things ever that is stable enough to say that anger is an entity. So the, the reason why the question isn't meaningful is that it's not that, that there's one pattern for anger in Turkish, uh, in a Turkish brain and a you know, brain that's been pickled in Turkish culture and that there's a different one um, for, for an American pattern in an American brain. It's that there isn't one pattern for anger in anybody's brain anywhere in the world. There are, your brain is capable of, your brain's most important job is regulating your body and trying to figure out how the stuff going on around you is relevant to you, to the chain, to what does your, what does your brain have to do to keep you alive and well? What does it have to do inside your body so that you can move so that you can deal with the world? That's really what's happening all the time. And you have a repertoire of things that you can do and a repertoire of making sense of those things. And your way of making sense of those things are also in your brain. They're signals in your brain. So I guess my point is that you're, you know, just in the same way that Darwin said that um, a biological category like a species is not, there's no like perfect uh, example of a dog, right? There's no perfect example. Only in dog shows do we have a perfect example of a cocker spaniel or a perfect, right? There's no perfect example of a of a dog. There's no perfect example of a human. There's no ideal or platonic version of any animal of any animal of any species. There's just variation, and the same is true for all biological categories, including emotion categories. And we know this because we study what happens in people's brains and we study what happens in animals' brains. Like if you put an animal, like a rat in a threatening situation where you fa it faces a predator, what does it do? Well, it does many things depending on the situation it's in. It might attack, it might freeze, it might run away. It might continue with business as usual, but just kind of be vigilant and paying attention. So it does many different things and physiologists have known really since the 1960s, that what your body does depends on what your brain's preparation for action is. So basically your physiology goes with your physical action. And if the physical actions are different in, in, a, in different episodes of emotion, then the physiology is going to be different. The brain patterns will be different and so on and so forth. And so we and other 
labs have spent a long time trying to understand these patterns because that's really the scientific question. It's not what is the brain pattern for anger. It's what are what is the population or what is the vocabulary um, of options for for you, Roy, and for me. And are they the same or do they have any overlap? I mean, you're a man, I'm a woman. You live in one country, I live in another country. But there are some similarities because we're both speaking English right now. It's not maybe your first language. And sometimes I feel like it's not my first language, <laughs> but we're both speaking English and my, we're both Jewish and we might not have been raised in exactly the same Jewish culture, but we're sort of, we have some cultural similarities um, but there are also cultural differences. So you can start to ask questions like, well, you know, the vocabulary, your vocabulary for creating anger, how much, on what features, dimensions, would it be similar to mine? And can we try to understand what's driving those similarities? Those are the kinds of questions that are scientifically viable, not questions like, What's the brain pattern? Where does anger live in the brain? What's the physical pattern for anger? And oh, is what is the meaning, the true meaning of anger? Because there is no true meaning yes, of anger. Okay. Frankly, there is no true meaning of anger for you or for me. You have a stereotype, but the true meaning of anger is your, that's like saying, what is the true, what is the best, what is the perfect version of a cocker spaniel and the answer is there isn't one yes That's not how biology works but when i read a jewish moral text about you know virtue about how to be how to better yourself and i said and they say something like the anger is a very bad virtue is a very bad uh, emotion okay and you need to steer away from anger i guess that they that there is like a a day like an an idea of what anger is that we all can relate. This is not a private language like Wittgenstein said. We have like, if I say anger and you understand English, you get my point. You, oh, I presume that you get my point, okay? So. <laughs> sure, I get your point. And I will say that, um, that look. Maybe it's a range. I, I'm going to say something super provocative now, okay? Stereotypes um, are not, don't completely come out of the blue, okay? So 35% of the time, people scowl in anger. So we could guess that maybe some proportion of the time, which is not zero, anger is destructive. I'm not saying scowling is destructive. I'm just I'm just using it as an analogy. So maybe anger is destructive some proportion of the time. And maybe that proportion of the time is not zero. And so if you're talking to a large group of people and you're trying to make a rule for everybody, even though people are individuals mm. and instances are different, if you're trying to make a rule, like um, think about, um, you know, you're trying to keep people from doing something which is sometimes bad for them, but not always, but maybe more than half the time. Mm. Then you make a rule and you follow that rule. So um, I guess what I would say is that the goal of religion is not to understand how things work. 
It's to... It's to regulate your behavior, like, regulate. Make, like maybe the emotions, like emotions are code. here to regulate, like your brain here to regulate your behavior. Well, no, let me just say it again. A scientist's job is to understand how the brain works in regulating your behavior. A religion's job is to create moral codes that work for the largest number of people in the largest number of instances, but that doesn't make them true all the time. And it doesn't even make them good explanations for how things work. So I think that, you know, there's a Buddhist thing about anger, right? Anger is a form of ignorance. Anger is a form of ignorance. If you're angry at somebody, it means you are not taking that other person's perspective and you're only informed on half the story of what's going on. I find this to be an extremely useful um, regulatory strategy. As someone who is prone to anger, <laughs> I, I think it... I, I think that the key word here is useful. This is useful. And yes, if we useful... have it, yes. Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry. Okay, so one thing, I think you are absolutely correct. And, and all truth in the humanities are only aggregate truth. You don't have like a one, I study intelligence, human intelligence, and I wrote a book about it, and I spoke with all the major researchers in intelligence, and all truth that we can say about human intelligence are aggregate, okay? Yes. Now, aggregate truth in the humanities are extremely important when you're doing policy making or when you go to yes. many yes. programs, but yes. it is only aggregate. And yes. I totally agree that also like the moral code of religion or other aspect in the humanities may be aggregate. I will ask you one last thing regarding the ancient Jewish wisdom about emotions well, because, yes. Before you ask me, let me just make a point about ag in the aggregate because I think this is really, you, you've just hit on something that's like super important, okay? And that's the following, that what Darwin said about, this is in On the Origin of Species, right? What he said about the aggregate is that it's a myth. It's a myth, it's an abstraction. It doesn't really exist. What really exists is variation. And in fact, when you look at every experiment, like there is something called the myth of the mean, which means that when you look at experiments, what you see is that, um, that most participants, whether they're humans or non-human animals, don't actually conform to the mean. There's variation and that variation is meaningful. It's not error. So when I'm talking to, the public, I'll say, you know, the average American middle-class family has 3.3 people in it. I don't know what the number is now, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but um, you know, three point, what family has 3.3 people in it? No family has 3.3 people in it. That's the point. The point is that it's an abstraction. Abstractions work for some things and they don't work for others. So what I would say is that if you're trying to speak to millions of people who are very different in very different situations themselves from one moment to the next. Maybe the aggregate is the best you can do, but that's not the goal of science. The goal of science is to really understand how something works for somebody in a particular situation, because when you only deal in aggregates, you make very, very, very big mistakes. I'm not the person who, I mean, Darwin was one person who, who said that, and there have been a number of people. I'll just say one other thing. You know, like there are um, studies that will look inside the brain of someone, of different people while they're experiencing, you know, some emotion, like say happiness or fear or anger. 
um, sadness, whatever. And they find a single pattern across the brain for, for that emotion. That's not a brain state. It's an aggregate abstraction. And actually we did a simulation to show that if you look at that pattern for, first of all, if you look at that pattern for anger or any emotion in one study, it's different in every single study. Okay. And you can't actually predict one person's experience of anger in one study using the same pattern as, in, as for somebody else in some other study. But more importantly, you and I could be in an experiment and that experiment could find a pattern for anger, but not a single element in that pattern could be in your brain when you're angry or my brain when I'm angry. And that pattern would still work to classify when we're angry because sometimes aggregates are just good enough. They're not precise and they're not accurate, but they're good enough, right? So in the humanities, maybe they're good enough, but in science, they're not good enough. And, and in real life, they're probably not good enough either because you said, you know, you don't, you don't maybe, uh, you can't infer maybe very well your wife's emotions, but you know, we're human brains are pattern learners. And, um, my husband is so good at making guesses about how, what I'm experiencing, even sometimes before I become aware, uh, of what I'm experiencing. He's really, really good. He pays a lot of attention and he's really, really good at it, but he got good at it over a 30 year period, right? It's not like we just met and he was good at it. He learned and his brain doesn't use aggregates. It uses situated instances. Yes, but I, you know, I was trained as a mentalist, as a mind reader, and uh, this is a very cool job. And when people say, think or ask about what do you need to become a mind reader, I tell them, when you go to a restaurant, do you choose to sit in front of the wall or in front of everyone? Right? So this is one thing you know, that separates people. Some people love to watch, love to gaze, love to are interested in other people. And when you're interested long enough and you pay close attention, some patterns, as you say, will emerge. You can detect those patterns. Yes, no, but your brain is not doing it in aggregate. Your brain is doing it in instances. That's how brains work. They generalize based on instances. If your brain was only generalizing based on aggregates of what you would learn, you would be very... Absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Nevertheless, again, in the humanities, we have nothing but aggregation. And this is part of what many people do in the academia, okay? You have nothing but aggregation because every person is different. And I want to push back a little bit though, because, you know, first of all, in science, there, there are many science scientists who've come to the realization that aggregates are not helpful. Um, and then they're trying to, um, they're trying much more to observe and model individual instances and build generalizations based on, on, features of similarity, patterns of similarity. But let me just give you an example and you tell me. So philosophers are all the time dealing in instances. One philosopher gives one example, they, you know, maybe they're using an example to try to make a point. And then the other philosopher says, well, but what about this? And what about that? And what about that? And what about, they're constantly introducing situated variation and, and 
trying to reason their way through it. Um, historians also um, deal very much with situate. I mean, that's what historiography is, is all about. It's about saying that, um, you know, things happen in a particular place at a particular time. They have a particular meaning in that place and time, and they may not have the same meaning in some other place and time. So I don't know. I mean, I think that um, aren't there in, in, um, in Jewish, um, in, Ju in the study of Judaism over time, don't, uh, haven't really learned rabbis debated the meaning of things based on, I mean, there are some people who, there are some people who, who take, you know, the Torah literally, but there are also a lot of rabbis who debate the meaning of something in particular situated circumstances, don't they? But the idea is, what are we debating about? Are we debating on like, what is the truth? What is the real truth? Uh, for example, what God wants, like, let's say that there is one truth and we are all trying to approach this truth, okay? And I think maybe when I say aggregate, I didn't explain myself because what I meant is in physics, I can replicate an experiment over and over again. And if one, just one once, the experiment fails, the entire theory just falls. And this happened in a Newtonical mechanic in, in, in the mechanic of Newton. And it happened with quantum mechanic. You just had need one instance that what you thought in physics didn't occur and the entire theory is wrong. But well, in... that's not exactly true in quantum mechanics. So let me just say that what you're describing there is P Karl Popper's view of um, falsification in science. And that view works very well for essentialist views like Newtonian physics, but it doesn't work particularly well for any kind of causality that is complex, where there's complexity into causation. There, um, you expect, if things are probabilistic, you expect sometimes that things won't replicate because something probabilistically is different. So what I would say- No, 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 no. I beg to differ. Of course, some part of quantum mechanics are probabilistic and therefore, and therefore we can't duplicate or replicate the experiment. But I can give you a scenario in quantum mechanics that if the experiment goes like this, the entire theory fall apart. Yes, but I can give you- that's different than saying I'm not replicating something. No, no, no. Okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're... no, no. I mean, you're, sure. Yes. I mean, there are, there are there are there are conditions of outcomes that can falsify. If you can't falsify, yeah, very good. Not, yes. You're not doing science. Yeah. I mean, okay, but but rep. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? What experience do I need to conduct in order to falsify, for example, your theory about? Well, emotions? okay. So first of all, if you could show me that somebody, so show me uh, that somebody um, doesn't actually have to know a concept. Um, they, they don't have to have a concept um, uh, in order to be able to um, read a particular facial movement as an expression of emotion to detect, right? If you could take somebody, for example, like let's say I take somebody who has semantic aphasia, they've lost all their concepts, they have no concepts, they can't, they don't know, they don't know the meanings of signals anymore, right? They can't conceptually tell you anything, but they can still detect fear in wide-eyed gasping faces and 
scowls in anger, that would be a falsification of our view because people with semantic dementia don't have. Yes, um, but if you don't have a concept, this is a very big. Uh, no, no, demand, you, no? you shouldn't. No, look, the, the view that emotions are universal doesn't require a concept. In fact, concepts are are, you know, what some of my colleagues would say is, look, emotion is one thing. A concept for emotion is another thing. You don't need concepts to feel emotion. You don't need mm -hmm. concepts to recognize emotion. They're just there in the biology. Well, okay. So then take somebody who doesn't have concepts. Take an infant who doesn't have concepts yet. That's hard because infants develop concepts early, but take a but how can I how can I uh, how can I communicate? I, how can I communicate my oh, feeling just, of emotions? Okay, here's an example. Here's an example of a study we did. We took people who had semantic dementia or semantic aphasia. These have also been done with people with semantic aphasia. And you just say, sort all the faces that are similar to each other in terms of the emotion being expressed. We don't ask them to tell us what the emotion is. We don't ask them to, they just like, how are, who are the, sort all the people into the same pile who feel the same way. They should be able to do it without labeling the emotion, without telling you what the emotions are. Yeah. They can't. Okay. They can't. Yeah. Um, this is very interesting. I, I think that this is a great talk. Okay. It, it's not yeah. a, it's right. But I'm not angry. No, no. Okay. I'm actually, no, I'm like, I'm totally engaged with you. No, right? no, no. This is great because we are both yeah. Jewish. So there is a, a, a verse in a Jewish tradition. It's called Ritcha Deoraita. It's it's like the anger of of the Torah. If you if you are well into one thing, you are just <laughs> this is yeah, so meaningful. That, yeah, you need to send me the name of that concept because I think that's a I need that one. <laughs> I will write it in Hebrew and then in English. Yeah, that would be wonderful. But like that's a really good example of a. That's a variety or a flavor because it's not just anger, right? It's, I mean, what you would say is it has some features of anger, but it also has some features of excitement. It has some features of engagement. And it also sometimes has features of affection. Like I can tell you that I spent two and a half years arguing with my colleagues and we I love each other to death now. Like we're, I mean, these are, these guys are some of my favorite people in the whole world. Not that I wasn't infuriated in our debate sometimes. You know, but... in Tel Aviv University, there is a very, very smart ritual. There, before the PhD graduation, the advisor and the students uh, gather in the synagogue and they need to make out. I don't know, make, up, make peace. I don't know how you say, okay? Because yeah. after four years of your dissertation, you probably <laughs> are very mad at your advisor. So before <laughs> the ceremony start, they meet at the synagogue and make, and make peace. And I think that this is wonderful. Now, let's take a, an article that was published in a 2018, Maps of Subjective Feelings by Laurie, I said, Numena, okay? And yeah. she said, I, I, you probably are familiar he, with... It's he. he. Ah, he, okay. So Laurie is an... Uh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyway, and uh, the idea is very, very nice. I I ask people to pinpoint yeah. the yeah. the place in the body where they're feeling yeah. 
special emotions. And what the article says, and the earlier version in 2013, that this yeah. is culture independent. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, let me tell you something. What do you think about this? I actually ran studies like this using exactly this method with a, a former postdoc of mine. Her name okay. is um, Susanna Osterbeich, maybe a decade ago. And we decided not to publish them. And the reason why is because we thought, well, we're just asking people their subjective beliefs. I mean, when you actually measure, if you measure physiological signals in the body and you ask people to, to um, report on their subjective experience of those sensations, they don't match. The objective measures don't match the subjective ones. You may feel that you are very in touch with what's going on inside your body, but you're not. And in fact, the wiring in your nervous system is designed in such a way that all you have is a vague sense of where a sense, a sensory change is happening. You don't actually have precision. So we thought, well, nobody would believe, people will just look at this and say, oh, well, these are just people's beliefs about um, uh, where um, emotions are felt. And no one will think that that's interesting. So we're not gonna publish it. And then what happens? Almost a decade later, in one of the best journals, in one of the best journals, they fail to make a distinction between what people say they feel and what actually, where the sensations are actually taking place. Like they treat a person's report of where they feel emotion in the body as literally where emotion exists in the body. That's hugely problematic. And also, I would say, they're taking an aggregate, an aggregate of one culture and an aggregate of another culture and an aggregate of another culture. And they're looking at the similarity across aggregates when in fact, there's tremendous variation within each culture. So what I would say, and not even that, if I tested you, Roy, Every time you felt anger, where do you feel it? Where do you feel your body? Where do you feel your body? In, in lots of different situations, you would not say the same place. So I guess my point is that what that shows, which is interesting, is that general aggregate beliefs about emotions, stereotypes about emotion are very similar across some cultures. But it Maybe says absolutely nothing, not a thing, nothing about where sensations are occurring and how stable they are in any individual in any culture nothing maybe that shows how much we seek for the universe the universality of emotions yes, yes. and then you can start asking questions like <laughs> why? Mm. yeah exactly amen why amen why <laughs> why do people seek it so that becomes that's like a really interesting question right like Why do people feel the need to, why is it important to find, like it's so important that people are ignoring basic rules of science, right? I mean, I sometimes, I sort of got to the point where I thought, 
I'm, I'm a clinician by training, right? So before I became a neuroscientist, before I became a physiologist, before I became a cognitive scientist. Clinical I psychology. Clinician. I was a clinician. And one of the things we do in clinical science, right, in, is that we, we ask questions of our, of, our, of our clients. We say, well, you know, you believe this, but here's the evidence. Like, here's the evidence, right? This is, this is, this is what happened, but you believe this. So, you know, like, what's going on here? <laughs> and I kind of feel the same thing I, about this field. I'm like, what is happening that evidence has been around for more than a century of tremendous variability, despite the fact that people are looking for the sameness, there's just tremendous variation. That that's structured and reliable. If you if you try to measure it, it's predictable. It's reliable within a person. Like, but why would people continue to search for these biological sameness? Like, yeah, but it's and, like metacognition. It's it it is our it it's our emotions regarding emotions. And let's say that I'm an author. I want to. To describe a scenario and they want all human beings to resonate with my scenario with my feelings the you know the tendency of you know being part of the entire uh, I don't human being only, community I think that's only part of it because you know why everybody loves variation we love variation in food we love variation in clothes we love variation in books and movies and We love variation in everything except each other. For each other, for other humans, we want everything to be the same. We really like sameness. And so I think that's part of it. I don't think that's the whole story, but I, I definitely think that's part of it. But I guess what I would say is I don't feel like um, I don't feel like I have to convince anybody of anything. I think the data speak for themselves. And my job is to just show you the data and make sure that you pay attention to it, that you don't just say, well, you know, I'm just going to not pay attention to this because I don't like how you did your study or, you know, like, okay, you don't like how I did study A, but then there's study B, C, D, E, and F that show the same thing that we're using different methods. So, you know, my job is to just bring that to light and show you and say, and to show my colleagues You know and say here's the evidence and then people will do what they do now in your latest book and uh, seven and a half lessons about the brain which is a small but immensely packed book very very interesting one of the lessons I think lesson number three is that your brain is doing predictions all the time and I just want to quote one for uh, uh, two sentences from uh, this chapter. Instead, think of the last time you were thirsty and drank a glass of water. Within seconds after draining the last drop, you probably felt less thirsty. This event might seem ordinary, but water actually takes about 20 minutes to reach your bloodstream. Water can't possibly quench your thirst in a few seconds. So what relieved your thirst? Prediction. 
This is great. Your brain, our brain makes predictions all the time. And based on that prediction, we live. And basically memory is that I take something from the past in the context of the present of, of, of the present and manipulate or postulate about the future. We just, we don't remember anything as a SD card. Could you please elaborate on this point? Because I think this is one of the seven and a half lessons that just strikes me. Well, there's a number. Uh, so as you can tell, probably I'm a pretty skeptical person. And um, that's probably why I'm a scientist, you know? I think that you are falling away from the microphone. Ah, sorry. I'm okay. Getting to relax. I'm getting to relax talking to you. That's the point. You, I'm having too much fun, and I'm. You started like, here. You started yeah. here, and now you're. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, no. I'm. I'm kind of leaning on my chair and relaxing. So take okay, take the, the microphone with you, Lisa. Yeah, I'm worried that I'm gonna hit my computer or something, and then like, you know, lose you're, the connection again. You're but, great. Um. Yeah. Okay. So, evidence from lots of different scientific fields that don't talk to each other all show evidence that the brain is not reacting to things in the world, it's predicting. So you and I experience the world as if we see something, we hear something, and then we react to it. Maybe we think about it, maybe we don't. You know, we have emotions, we have thoughts, and they, you know, they fight with each other um, for control of our behavior in reaction to whatever we see and hear and smell and so on. But that's actually not how our brains work at all. Our brains are actually predicting. So if we were to stop time right now, your brain would be representing what is going on in your body and in the world and predicting based on patterns of experience from the past, predicting what's what you're going to see next, hear next, smell next, feel next, do next. And those predictions are not abstract things. You're not aware of that. It's that your brain is your brain doesn't make itself aware that it's doing this. These are these predictions are your brain changing the firing of its own neurons in anticipation of what it expects. And the sense changing data, the firing of its own neuron. The yeah, brain so manipulates itself in the yes, process of predicting. That's right. That's wow. what we call intrinsic activity. That's what's called intrinsic activity of the brain. So for example, if I ask you, have you ever had a song go through your head? that you cannot get out of your head. Um, it's just a song that like, you know, you've heard in the past that you can't get out of your head. Those are, that's, that's the same thing as a prediction signal. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. And I have all these examples uh, that I show people where, you know, they, they can't possibly predict what's on the screen um, and they're experientially blind to it. And then I, then I create an experience for them and then I show them the image again, and all of a sudden they can see something. And it's because their brain at that point predicted, because I gave them an experience that, that, that their brain could then use to make a prediction. So your brain is always predicting all the time. And um, what we say when we, what we call memory, what we call perception, what we call perceptual inference, even what I call concepts or categories, those are all words for the same process, basically. Your brain is constantly using the past to predict the immediate future. 
it's actually starting to prepare what it will see and hear and smell and feel and do in anticipation of those sense sensory signals from the body and from the world. And the real mind blower is if the sense data are as the brain predicted, okay, then they're just there to confirm those predictions. The neurons are already firing in a way to create the experience. And so poof, you have the experience. So when the sense data are as the brain predicts, the majority, those sensory signals don't make it very far into the brain. They don't have to, because they've done their job. But if there are differences, what we would call prediction errors, then the brain has a choice. It can learn those errors. That's what we call learning. <laughs> like, or ignore it, them. I'm sorry, or ignore them, exactly. Exactly. Let me tell you one thing that I usually, I used to do. There is a, like a gimmick wallet that you open it and there is fire out of the wallet. <laughs> and doing the magic show, this is one hell of a trick, okay? You mm -hmm. open your wallet and then <laughs> fire out of the wallet. Now, if you do the same trick without the context of a magic show, many people won't notice the fire. Mm -hmm. They simply don't notice. They, they have inattentional blindness. Yes. Uh -huh. They uh -huh. say, they see the fire, but they say, no, fire can, can come out of the wallet. Therefore, I don't see the fire. They don't make it as a conscious thing, but they just don't react to the fire because the prediction, there was an error in the prediction. When I opened the wallet, yes, but the there brain, should be a wallet. But the, but the brain doesn't just predict the signals of sense data. It also predicts which errors are going to, it will care about. Like it, if it predicts that the errors are irrelevant to the, there's no need to spend the metabolic resources to learn them. So it, um, and that's what we call salience. Salience is the prediction that things matter to your well-being, to the physical well-being of your body. There has to be metabolic value, meaning that why would you spend resources to learn something if it's not going to be useful to you in the future? You wouldn't. It would be silly. It'd be squandering resources. So the brain's only going to learn stuff that it believes is going to be useful for better predictions in the future because that actually reduces metabolic cost. And then that metabolic cost can be used for other things like having offspring, for example. <laughs> right. So that's the argument that, that, um, the brain is always, it's got lots of different things and, and lim to do and limited resources, and it has to make decisions. And that's why in, so what the brain is learning is not particular signals. It's learning ensembles of signals. And, um, let's say, let's say that I read chapter four, this is like the fourth lesson of the seven and a half lessons. And I want to take something to my life. I want to alter or change something in my life based on your uh, wisdom that the brain does prediction all the time. What can I alter? What can I change in my life in all that suit this uh, conclusion, this scientific conclusion about the brain? Well, there are two things I would say that you could do that you could take away. One is your brain will your your health and your well-being are dependent on how well your brain 
predicts flexibly in, in different situations. So you can deliberately, just like you would exercise, you expend metabolic energy um, in the moment to create a healthier, stronger body, right? In the future, you can deliberately engage, um, create experiences for yourself, cultivate them, which is expensive metabolically, but you can deliberately expose yourself to novel situations, to ideas that you don't particularly like. Be curious about the world. Be curious about yourself in the world. Be curious about other people in the world. All of these things actually create experiences that your brain will learn and make, then make your brain a better predictor yeah by making new novel scenarios where your brain needs to predict new things yeah and for some things we we know this right like we like you might spend a lot of time learning a new skill for example and sometimes it feels unpleasant to like you're working really hard at something and it feels unpleasant it feels unpleasant because um because because it, it's expensive metabolically. And, and you need to re rewire your neurons yeah, when you but, learn something but new. It's understanding that discomfort isn't, doesn't always mean something is wrong. Discomfort can also mean you're just doing something hard. Like you're doing something that's metabolically costly. And um, that's why something can be unpleasant. And so- You know, I um, had Bob York on the show and he uh, introduced the concept of deliberate- uh, Or, or, I'm sorry, desirable difficulties. When yes, something exactly. is hard, something is hard, but nevertheless, this is desirable. This yes, difficulty exactly. is very important for you. Now, another... So I say, yes, yes, please. Yeah, I would just say curiosity is one thing. And the other thing is, you know, humility, a little humility. Because it doesn't really matter how confident you feel about anything. Your brain is always guessing. And it's guessing... based on your past experience and you could be wrong. It doesn't matter how confident you feel. You could be wrong. So a little humility, <laughs> right? Like a little curiosity and a little humility goes a long way, I think. You know, I was told that uh, ever since the war of Yom Kippur in Israel, the, the Israeli intelligence is very, very keen on this very subject. And the idea of the entire Israeli intelligence is that any soldier, it can be, you know, the lowest in the, you know, the, 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 the bottom in the order can say in front of the, and the chief officer, everything he wants, because we want this humility after Yom Kippur, after this was, uh, this was injected to the Israeli intelligence. The idea is that we may be wrong. We may be wrong. So this is, So true. Now, in, there is one word that keeps showing up in your books, but especially in the seven and a half lesson. And this word is, you want to guess? One word that you keep writing over and over again. Well, I'm sure there are multiple words I keep writing yes, over and over again. But, but uh... I'm referring to one word and the word is budget. Oh, body budgeting. Uh -huh. This is sure. a very important word. And mm -hmm. I think this Uh, has to do with the half lesson, not the, the half lesson of the seven and a half lesson is that our brain is not for thinking, is for regulating or managing the budget of, and the budget may be the resources that we have, the mental, the physical, everything. 
So the brain is not for thinking. We need to be very careful about how we manage the budget since the brain is the most expensive organ. Could you please elaborate on this point? Because it's extremely important. Yes. So, of course, your brain does think. But the point that I was making is that um, brains didn't evolve to be able to think. That if you look at the evolution of the vertebrate brain, and we're vertebrates, um, what you see is that brains appeared um, in animals at the same time as um, senses developed. So being able to see and hear and smell and feel and so on. And also as bodies got bigger and much more complicated. And the idea that um, the brain is anticipating the needs of the body and meeting those needs before they arise uh, is a, that prediction is really for coordinating the gazillions of parts inside your body and regulating them in a metabolically efficient way. That idea is called allostasis. It's a big word. And um, the metaphor that I use is body budgeting. And as I talk about, I think in essay one, you know, all metaphors are wrong. <laughs> okay. All metaphors are wrong. But in science, sometimes you need metaphors to explain complicated ideas. And so you pick the one that you think is the least wrong for uh, your purposes. And so I think body budgeting is a pretty good metaphor for my purposes, which is your brain isn't budgeting money. It's budgeting resources like glucose and oxygen and salt and water and so on that are required by your cells to keep your, to, for your cells to stay alive. And your brain, you have, you have trillions of cells in your body that all have to work together in an efficient way. Um, and so you can think about your brain as a body budgeting device in a sense. Um, and um, it's making decisions about what to spend, when to spend, when to save. And many of the things that we worry about in everyday life, depression, anxiety, physical illnesses, like diabetes, heart disease, these are all problems of body budgeting. They're all problems of allostasis. They're problems of energy, metabolism regulation. Could you please right? explain I, this Latin word? What does it mean? This allostasis is means finding balance and change, I think. Okay. But it basically, the goal isn't to spend nothing. The goal is to spend efficiently. Because of course you have to spend, you have to spend, when you move your body, you have to spend. When you learn something new, you're spending. So if you, you have to stay alive, to stay alive, you have to spend. But what you want to do is spend in an efficient way. And, so, and in a recent interview, you just said that uh, this is correlated with longevity. Because yes. if you manage your budget efficiently, you will live longer. Yes. And in fact, metabolic problems like <clears throat> heart disease diabetes whatever they are they're all 
they have something in common with depression and anxiety, which people usually think of as mental illnesses, but really depression is like a bankrupt body budget. Basically it's like you, you just, what do you do when you're, um, when your financial budget is bankrupt, you're, or running a deficit, you, you stop spending. And what does it mean to stop spending in a brain? Well, it means that you stop moving your body and you stop learning. You, you become stuck in, um, you're, you're kind of stuck in your own head and you don't respond to what's around you in the world as well. And those are two very, very salient symptoms of depression, for example. And um, I mean, I could go on and on and on about this and we don't have time, but I will say that hmm. metaphorically, you could also think about other things which are really expensive metabolically, like democracy is expensive metabolically. <laughs> You're constantly <laughs> engaging with people who you disagree with in, in, in order to, well, at least in principle, in order to find a compromise. And there's a lot of discomfort there because there's a lot of body budgeting implications. Right. And, and you could also, you know, think about authoritarianism as a complete failure of um, budgeting, <laughs> like somebody who's, you know, really compromised metabolically not may not have the spoons to engage with lots of ideas and, you know, might be instead, you know, looking for simple single solutions to things and they don't have to think very much and they can be told by someone what to do, like an authority figure and so on. It's hard to know, Roy, how far to stretch these metaphors. And I'm certainly not claiming that any of these things are true, that metabolics has something to do with politics or what have you. But I think it's an interesting avenue for exploration is what I would say. Wow. Now, we don't have much more time. Therefore, and uh, unfortunately, we can't go into that. We don't have a lizard brain. <laughs> this is a great, this, this is a great chapter. And I wanted to ask you about the book, The Master and his Emissary, about, you know, the right, left brain uh, uh, functionality. But I won't go into this. I just want to mention one quote that I loved so much from your book about the nature-nurture uh, debate, we have the kind of nature that requires nurture. And this is great because this is basically what we're doing right now. You have a baby and this baby is equipped with so more neurons than an adult and in the process of pruning, and this is what we do in artificial intelligence or artificial intelligence networks, we just cut. And those, uh, this procedure of cutting neurons is nurture this is what you say basically yes yes and, so, and i i wanted to ask you just about this very uh question about nature versus nurture i had a discussion on this channel with a very famous uh, israeli child neurologist and i asked him what is a barrier what is a borderline between telling a child just behave you know just sit on on the chair and listen to the teacher and listen to the teacher and be polite. Okay, walk on your virtues, and say, okay, you must take medications. What is the borderline that you can say from here? This is just no neurological defect. And he said there is no one clear borderline. 
This is a range. What you take on how much do can we work on our virtue on our uh, bad tendency? I don't know how you call it in English. And when you say no, this is all part of the wiring system that our brain has. Well, I would say that expecting young children to sit uh, for three or four hours at a time doing things that they um, don't find all that interesting isn't a virtue. And the fact that we consider it a virtue and medicate children so that they can do it is hugely problematic. But but that's not what we're talking about here. Okay. So I just I will just say that there are other ways to educate children. You know, Montessori had a, you know, Maria Montessori, a very different way. I'm not saying that that's what should be done, but I'm saying there isn't only one way to educate a child. And in fact, Temple Grandin had a fantastic uh, op-ed in the New York Times this morning about this issue. So when we give children medication, we're giving them medication because we want them to conform to a set of behaviors that we think are the behaviors they should be conforming to. But there are other ways to teach children that don't I'm require totally that. I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Anti-depression so what, among adults, okay? Just don't be sad because your life well, is incredible and take anti-depressions. Well, okay. don't be, yeah, don't be sad is doesn't work. Like thinking differently to feel differently is doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is that, um, uh, you know, the, the way our brains work is it prepares action first and experience second. <laughs> so, you know, what you have to do, it's probably the feeling that's driving the thinking and not the other way around. Um, but, uh, But, and, and actually a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy is not about thinking, it's about doing. And doing actually helps you think differently. It helps you feel differently and it helps you think differently. But just sitting around thinking isn't really going to help you very much. Um, but I would say that um, once your body budget, like a lot of what's been going on, you know, for the past couple of years with COVID, the COVID pandemic, left people really depleted and they were depleted before. I mean, one of the things that depletes uh, a body, but human body budget uncertainty, uncertainty is very bad for uh, like prolonged uncertainty, very bad for a human body budget, like really bad and it will deplete you. So this the story that we've like our fight and flight circuits have been overloaded and all that. We don't have fight or flight circuits. Like the circuits that people talk about as fight or flight circuits are active, They're regulating your body all the time, even when you just like remember a phone number. I mean, you know, really mundane things. So no, what's happening is there's been prolonged uncertainty after a period of time where there was already body budgeting deficits for other reasons. And so people are depleted. Now, when you're depleted, you feel bad, you feel unpleasant. And your normal tendency is to look around in the world and go, what's wrong with my life? But it could be that you just need some to, to sleep better and you need to hydrate properly and you need to eat healthfully and you need to exercise. And you would be amazed. I'm not saying that everything like serious illness is reducible to changing a few things, but you'd be surprised actually how much different things feel when you're well rested and you know eating healthfully and so on. But there does come a certain point. A tipping point where no amount of self-care is going to help you and where other you need to make a massive deposit so to speak into your body budget and that's partly 
um, what's happening when you take an SSRI, metaphorically speaking, when you take an SSRI, um, which is the most common kind of antidepressant or a SNRI, which is acting not on serotonin, but on norepinephrine, what's happening is you're kind of juicing the system. Um, you're, um, you know, serotonin is a neurotransmitter that brains use, actually your cells all over your body use it for energy regulation. And the neurons, one of the things it does for neurons in the brain is it allows the brain to track um, your reinforcement history, meaning what do you get for the energy that you spend? Okay. And it allows animals to work when they, when there's no forage for information, when there's no immediate re reward in sight. So it's actually getting the animal to learn about new circumstances to build that predictive model. And that can be a really good thing if all you have is a body budgeting deficit. It can kind of get you out of that hole so that you can start learning about the world again and engaging with the world again. But if you live in a world that's full of uncertainty or violence or deprivation, if you actually have a metabolic drag, like there's something wrong with your mitochondria or there's like a problem in your body, then taking serotonin, uh, reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, is not going to help you. You're just and alone and alone and alone. It's alone and alone and alone. And you know what happens when you keep taking loans and you can't pay them back? You get you you go further and further into debt. Wow. And this met this metaphor of body budgeting and what you say about the SSRI is eye-opening. I, I don't know how you to say it, but this is so smart. So the body budgeting metaphor is a useful metaphor. Um, you know, it has some things, as I said, it has some things wrong with it. It's not perfect, but it's, it's a useful metaphor for remembering that we live our lives, Roy, we don't think about body budget. We don't think about metabolic cost mm -hmm. of anything. We, right. We don't think about that when we're giving a hug to someone or we're, we're, you know, withstanding mm -hmm. an, an insult from someone or we, we don't, we don't. That's not how we experience ourselves, but under the hood, that, that is what your brain is always doing as it creates feelings and thoughts and so on. Um, and it's a good thing. Once you know that you start to see things a little differently and you start to, uh, make decisions a little differently. Great. One last thing is what you said about doing is much better. This was, uh, the takeoff, uh, Aristotle in his ethics. Uh, in contrary to Plato's Socrates, who said, if you know the right thing, you will do the right thing. And Maimonides and the entire uh, Jewish wisdom yes. took this yes. approach where yes. after what you do, your emotion will follow. Your emotions will follow. And doing is much more important than feeling or thinking. And, and there is another verse, I don't know how to translate it, where the the difference between the tzaddik and rasha, the bad guy and the good guy, is in which position your heart is. Is your heart controls you or you control your heart? If you control your heart, you're the bad guy. You're the good guy. Because what you're doing is much more important than what you're thinking. And I will say even more, what you are doing is 
defining who you are. You are what you do, what you do exactly. and know what, what you feel. Exactly, exactly. So I, I don't know about the heart and the head and so on, yes. that, that we could have a conversation about yes. that. But I think that, you know, the entire reason that we bought mitzvah, our daughter actually, was so that she could learn that what you do is more important than what you think and what you feel. I mean, it's good. It's great to think the, to think, you know, righteous thoughts and it's good to feel, you know, to have the right feelings that will, but the point is that actually do who you are is, is constituted by what you do, by what you do. There's a saying that sometimes like I counter on the internet sometimes, especially when I'm like, um, you know, um, responding to, um, someone who's emailed me or, and, or when I'm exercising or something, I'll sometimes see it where they, they say something like I am, I can, I will, I do. And I think, no, 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 no. You know, that's essentialist. No, it's really, I can, um, I do, I can, I am. No, it's I no, it's I can, I will, I do, I am. You are what you do. And I do think that this is a fundamentally Jewish way of thinking that is not uh, that is somewhat different from um, other the postmodern world that we are in right yes. now. Yes. And I also think that it has very strong implications. I don't have to tell you. Yes, definitely. Um, about very you know, strong implications relationships for... fam about family about yeah. how you parenting your children yes what you it... do is much more important than what you than what you think and it also means that you have an extra modicum of responsibility that you don't have in some other meaning systems and I think that's also something that is true of our way of you Like, uh, you know, our scientific framework. In our scientific framework, you're responsible for what you do. And sometimes you're responsible for things, not because you, you're culpable, not because you caused something bad, but because you're the only one who can, you're the only one who can change your predictions. You're the only one who can do it. It's hard. Um, you don't see the results right away. It's never easy to do. But you can do it, and you're the only one who can do it. And so that there's an there's there's a freedom that comes with that responsibility, but there is responsibility there that isn't there if you believe that you know your emotions are your inner beasts that are programmed into your brain at birth, and that cognition is, you know, has to battle these inner your inner beast in order for you to behave properly, definitely. Definitely. Lisa, thank you so much for your time. This was an eye-opening, mind-blowing, inspiring conversation. I love the, I call it in Israeli fight. I, I, I love to live, but it was very, very enjoyable. Thank you so much for your time. It was my great pleasure. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. Wow. Bye-bye. And I will email you the final results. Okay, wonderful. Thank <laughs> bye you. Bye-bye. 
אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת אתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.